It's good to be with you this morning. I've never been to this particular corner of California. Uh, so as I was coming up 101, and I said, well, that's a nice-looking church off there beside the road. they got a great location, too. And then I saw it was where I was coming. Uh, how good can that be? Uh, so congratulations. I want to talk to you this morning about your church, my church, our church. What makes a church? Is it buildings? Got a nice one here. Is it people? Is it statistics? We've got some pretty impressive ones. 21, 21 million members around the world now. Got 175 hospitals. Probably about 450 clinics. We've got 8,000 schools the Adventist Church operates around the world. 8,000. 112 colleges and universities. 1.7 million students studying in those schools. It's got to be pretty impressive. Is it beliefs? We've got a set of those. We're up to 28 doctrines, we call them. Is that what makes a church? Is it the truth? Do we have the truth? Are we sure? You look at the beginning of the Adventist commentary, it uses a phrase that we've prized in this church through all of our history. It says, present truth. What does that mean? That suggests that there may be more to come. Here's where we are now, but there may be more to come. Is that a bit scary? Do we struggle with issues in this church? Do we have it all yet, or where is it going? There's an old Kenyan saying I like. It says, from the ignorance that dare not face new truth, from the laziness that tolerates half-truth, and from the arrogance that thinks it knows all truth, dear Lord, deliver me. Do we have the truth? There's a certain part, I think, of all of us that have been grounded in this church. They, boy, we've got it. We've got it figured out. We know where it's at. And yet we struggle with issues. We've got issues in the church today. Women's ordination, LGBT, a variety of things that this, earth, this church is struggling with. Some of you may have heard the Methodist Church just made a decision last week. They're probably going to split the Methodist church over the LGBT issue, make two churches, because they can't come to an agreement. So we are in a troubled world, and we're in a troubled world even when we believe we have the truth. There are still struggles that we are facing. And we face those at Loma Linda. Let me tell you some of our challenges. We get about ten to 11,000 applicants to Loma Linda each year. We can accept about 2,000. How do we choose the right ones? Most of those aren't members of the Adventist church. 
but they come to us saying, I want a spiritual environment to develop my professional skills. I'd like to join you at Loma Linda. What do we say? We can't grow much bigger. So what we go through this whole process of trying to determine how do we retain, how do we become a special place that means something to people. And as, as Dr. Mulder shared, through the years, there's something special about Loma Linda that's happened. It was 1955 when we celebrated our 50th anniversary that we came up with a motto that many of you know now that's associated with Loma Linda, to make man whole. It was actually a committee that was assigned to come up with a model for Loma Linda, and they were going through all sorts of things and you know trying to brainstorm in committees never works very well. Uh, and finally, somebody read a text in J.B. Phillips. I mean, remember J.B. Phillips' new, uh, the translation of the New Testament had just come out and saw the phrase, to make man whole, and said, that's it. And that became Loma Linda's motto. And then at our 100th anniversary, we added some more onto that. We sorted out, said we need some core values. And so we came up with seven core values. We remember it by the acronym J-Chiefs, Justice, Compassion, humility, integrity, excellence, freedom, and self-control. Those are the seven core values of Loma Linda. And we also embody those in the phrase to continue the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus Christ. But now ask yourself, if you're a teacher and you're teaching Humility. How would you do that? Can you stand up in front of the classroom and let me, let me define humility for you and tell you to be humble? How do you teach compassion? See, and I think that's been the secret of Loma Linda and to a degree the Adventist church is that we don't just talk, we walk. And so through the years, we have sought to have a variety of activities that says, yes, you will learn in the classroom, but we are more concerned about who you are than what you know. And it's only by confronting human experience, confronting the, ch- the challenges of life, that indeed you learn the core values of things like compassion and integrity and humility. We do that a number of ways. We've had for many years a program we call the DMA, Deferred Mission Appointee Program. We now have the Global Service Award Program in which any graduate from Loma Linda of any school, if they want to serve abroad, will pay their educational debts while they serve. Because that gives an opportunity for our young people to go out to engage with human need And my belief, that is where you learn the essence of of Christianity. And I could tell you many, many stories of what has happened in those settings. I was just last weekend in Haiti. What happened 10 years ago in Haiti? Earthquake. January 12, 2010. We had a memorial service uh, at our little hospital there in Haiti, Scott Nelson, some of you know, an orthopedic surgeon. His dad lives in uh, 
I don't know, Pismo Beach or somewhere down in San Luis Obispo, is down there now working there full-time, helping to rebuild that hospital and all the challenges that it faces. Tell you another story. One of our graduates from 2008 from the School of Medicine, young lady by the name of Jillian Seaton, quiet gal, I didn't really get acquainted with her as a student. Uh, she went off to the University of Utah to do her surgery residency and went through that. So in 2013, uh, she called me, Dr. Art, you know, I'm getting ready to go abroad. I want to serve someplace. I need to decide where I'd like to go. And I said, well, good, Jillian, it's time. Why don't you travel with me? I'm going out for board meetings in Malawi and Zambia and Rwanda and so on. She said, okay. So we traveled together, as we often do. And she visited, I mean, here's a single lady. I thought, well, I need to find some place that has a bit of social life and some others around and a comfortable place. So we have some of those places. We visit Malamulo, we visit Mwami Hospital and so on. And then she said, no, well, Dr. Hart, I really want to go where no one else wants to go. Well, we've got some of those places, too. And so she says, okay, let me, let me look at some of those. And so she traveled on by herself. Went back home, and uh, a little while later she called and says, okay, I'm ready. I want to go to Liberia, a little hospital in Monrovia, Liberia, called Cooper Adventist Hospital. This was the spring of 2014, and so Julian headed to Monrovia. And you all know what happened later that year. The Ebola epidemic began, and our little hospital was at the heart of it. And I'll never forget, one morning I was in clinic. My cell phone rang. It was Jillian. The doctor, I don't know what to do. The church says it's time to come home. It's too dangerous. Uh, We've bought you a ticket to leave on Sunday. It's time to come home. I don't want to leave. They need me here. And so we made a decision. said, Jillian, we will promise to send you the personal protective equipment We'll help to pay the bills at the hospital because the economy had gone flat. Uh, we'll help to provide, find other doctors. Wasn't sure I could do that. Find other doctors would come to help you. Let's keep going. And so they set up a system to triage Ebola patients in their cars. They looked look through the window and try to decide what the diagnosis was and send them on to the Ebola treatment center, but keep our hospital going for all those who had no other way to get care because all the hospitals were shutting down. And yet there were people getting obstructed labor and trauma and emergencies that needed to be cared for. Went on fairly well for a few months, and then a case came through. They didn't catch Ebola in the hospital. The hospital had to shut down. The staff go into quarantine. They flew Jillian home for 21 days, incubation period of Ebola. As soon as it was over, back on a plane, back out to Liberia. And that happened again, back home from quarantine, back out to Liberia. And it's that kind of compassion and dedication you don't teach in a classroom. That's the sort of thing that comes from within, that comes from the values you all instill in your young people, and that we try to nurture and grow at Loma Linda. 
me tell you one other story from Loma Linda. Back when we first started in 1905, I wasn't actually there then. Uh, but around 1907, they were already reaching out and doing a lot of community activities. And our OBGYN doctor at that time, by the name of Dr. Lyra George, uh, got a reputation for going out to do, do deliveries in the homes of the people around. Many of the people who lived in the San Bernardino Valley at that time were Indians, the Serrano Indian tribe. And so they would send somebody in on horseback, and uh, Dr. Lyra would get on her horse and go out and ride with them and do a delivery in their home. And a few years went by. They finally got to cars. Uh, she started taking a medical student with her. Uh, they worked it out so they could hook on a wire to the battery of the car and run a long wire into the home to have a light for the delivery. Uh, and the years went by. Over the next several decades, why Loma Linda continued to take care of those folk and their lives. They would live in the valley in the winter, move up to Lake Arrowhead, Big Bear in the summer to be cool, back and forth. Not a large tribe, but but a, a critical tribe. Then in the 60s, someone picked up and started doing branch Sabbath schools in their homes uh, and taught them values. About seven or eight years ago now, I invited them to come to our board meeting, uh, telling their story. I didn't realize all this background about the Branch Sabbath School. They said, you know, it's Loma Linda that kept our tribe. When we had nothing, you took care of us. We'd like to give back. Well, by now, this tribe had wealth. Casinos, restaurants, hotels, into a lot of things. Still a small, small group of people. And so when we decided to build our San Bernardino campus, they said, we want to give you $10 million to put this, what we call the San Manuel Gateway College, a place where we can educate the high school kids of San Bernardino to have job entry skills, to get things like medical assistants, community health workers, surgical tech, dialysis tech, pharmacy tech, to get a start, because we have a problem in San Bernardino. We're the second largest bankrupt city in the country, only after Detroit. Uh, and a way to give these kids job skills was critically important. And this tribe says, when we had nothing, you gave us. Now we want to give you. I want to share with you a Bible story that has always haunted me when I think about how do we recruit the right students, and train them for service. It's a story of a group of college graduates in the Bible, people selected by God to leave their church. The best of their families, the best of their church. They were very proud of them. Let me share with you their names. Shemua, Shaphat, Igal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sether, Nabi, and Geuel. Who are those guys? Zach? <laughs> I have a Bible scholar over here. If I add two more names, you will all know them. Caleb and Joshua. 
Those are the 12 spies. Leaders of the children of Israel, leaders of their tribes, finished their training, chosen by God to go spy out the land of Canaan. And you all know the story. I mean, there's not many tasks in the Bible I would have liked, but I would have enjoyed being a spy. (laughs) I, I think I could have done that. But what happened over those 40 days is what plagues me. They all recognized the beautiful bounties of the land of Canaan. My goodness, the fruit stole some grapes so heavy they had to carry it between two of them. But somewhere on that trip, their hearts went faint. They started doubting God's calling. They started doubting their assignment. And they struggled. And then they came to the city of Anak. And what did they say? My goodness, those guys are big. Their city's fortified. There's no way we can take this land. And so when they came back to give the report, Moses had the children of Israel sit down. Scholars tell us there's maybe as many as two million people in the children of Israel at that time. It's hard to imagine. I don't know what sort of PA system they had. But the majority report came first. And they said, boy, it is a beautiful place. Full of milk and honey. Fruit. Everything. But. You should have seen those people. And what was their phrase? We look like grasshoppers besides them. And they slipped into the grasshopper complex. Of my goodness, even though God has promised this is not possible, we'd be foolish to try. What happened in those 40 days that took these bright young men, committed to God's purpose, chosen by him, leaders of their people, to become pessimists, naysayers, doubting their own destiny? That's the challenge I worry about our young people today. What does it take? And then, of course, Caleb and Joshua stood up. It's all true, but remember one thing. What God has promised us is ours already. We don't have to fight for it. It's ours. And you know what happened. Those ten young men, by the end of the day, were dead. And the children of Israel turned back into the wilderness for another 40 years. That's the challenge I feel, frankly, as an educator in this church, because we have some challenges. We have some challenges in this country. I've done a fair amount of work in the country of Zambia. Zambia has 17, roughly 17 million people in the heart of Africa. There are now more Adventists in Zambia than there are in the United States. About 1.2 million. And it's growing fast. And we're kind of plateaued. 
We have closed 256 schools in this country in the last 10 years. 256 schools. Our colleges, 13 of them, we've lost one already. Our colleges have been dropping about 2.5% a year over the last seven years. Enrollment. Struggling. How do we balance that? And it's that sort of thing that makes me ask the question, what makes a church? Is it our schools? Is it our hospitals? Where are we going? I want to share one more story with you. This began in a small town. Small church, a young Adventist family raising their children. As every father and mother, they watched their children grow, were proud of what they saw. A boy and two girls, and watched them grow up. Life was good. Attended church every Sabbath doing well and as they got older uh, the father noticed and uh, everyone noticed that his youngest daughter his beautiful young daughter was one of those uniquely beautiful young women that turns heads everywhere I've got three daughters it's nice to have beautiful daughters it's scary to have beautiful daughters And he watched this daughter grow and uh, became an attractive young lady. And then one day the unthinkable thing happened. The mother heard it first down at the market. The father heard it when he came in from his work. Their daughter, their beautiful young daughter, had been caught in adultery. What do you do when that happens in a church? Disfellowship them? Not part of us. That's not what we do. It was a long evening that night in home. No one spoke as they ate. Mom and Dad lay awake during the night. What in the world happened? What did we do wrong? What do we do now? What do we do with life? The next day it was hard to talk. The rumors started going around church, started going around town, all that kind of stuff that happens. As painful as it was, the day started going by. They finally sat down and and talked with their daughter. You know, I'm so, so sorry. It'll never happen again. I don't know what happened. It'll never happen again. They tried to put their lives back together and move on. And then it happened again. 
and again. And their daughter, their beautiful young daughter, came to be known as the town prostitute. What do you do in a church when that happens? You let her in? You kick her out? You invite her over? Do you shun her? It's a painful journey for any family to go on. They finally made the decision that probably the best thing would be to go somewhere else uh, to move for her to move away, try to start her life anew. So she took her few belongings and they headed down the road to go live with some distant relatives in another village. She got there, she got a job, was very determined to turn her life around. Started trying to go back to church again. But finally some travelers came through from her old town, recognized her. The old temptations returned and she slipped back into a life of prostitution. Then one day she heard there was a traveling preacher coming to town. She didn't have much use for the church anymore. They pretty well rejected her. She'd rejected them. But out of curiosity, she decided to just go linger on the edge of the crowd and listen. She went down the village square and listened to this guy. And it was there in the village of Magdala that Mary first met Jesus. And you remember the story. When the crowd, some of the men there saw her, why they started to ask, you know who that is? And Jesus recognized what was going on. I can tell you if that had been me, I would have nailed him on the spot. But what did Christ do? Bent over and started writing in the sand about each one of them. And one by one, they slipped away. Until finally he could say, Mary, where are your accusers? Now, it'd be nice if the story ended right there. But it doesn't. The Bible later tells us that Christ cast out seven demons from Mary. So this lady was still plagued with something that was struggling within her. Then we next find Mary back at her hometown of Bethany. Reunited with her family, Martha and Lazarus. And Simon invited the group over and the disciples over for a party. Bible scholars suggest that it may have been Simon that led Mary into adultery in the first place. So she didn't get an invitation to this party. And yet she slipped in the back door after it was dark, found a way across the room to anoint Jesus' feet with perfume. But you've gotten one thing, perfume smells. And soon the whole room knew what was happening. And Simon looked at Christ and said, this guy's, this guy's phony. He's no prophet. He has no idea who that lady is. And her background. And once again, if I would have been Christ, I would have nailed him on the spot. What a hypocrite. 
that Christ said, Simon, if two people owed money, one 500 and one 50, and both were forgiven, who would love the most? And Simon knew that he understood. We next find Mary at the foot of the cross. The disciples had scattered. They were afraid. Few women there ministering to Christ. And then finally, Sunday morning, who was the first at the tomb? Found the stone rolled back, empty tomb. Turned to the gardener to say, where have you put him? And Jesus said, Mary. And if you think about that scene, here is the greatest event of all mankind. Christ inviting the village prostitute, the demon-possessed woman, the frequent sinner, to announce to the rest of the world the greatest news of all mankind, that he was risen. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of church I want. That's the kind of church that says, we're all sinners. We're in this together. Come, let's be one. That's my hope and prayer for this church. I worry about it. I worry about the destiny that we're facing, the challenges that are in the world. I worry about the chaos that's out there. But I worry most about the heart and soul of this church. Let me close with a saying that I often use with our students at Loma Linda. It's a satire on the way most of us live our lives. It's entitled, Three Dollars Worth of God. It says, I would like to buy just three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love an alcoholic or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy just $3 worth of God, please. I'm afraid for much of this country and for many of us in the church, that may be our story. And as this world winds down, as it most assuredly is, I pray that we may have a spirit of inclusion, of acceptance, of love that permeates all of us. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, it's always a privilege to come before you on a Sabbath day with fellow believers. As we look at the world around us, as we look at ourselves 
as we look at our own church, Father, we struggle with knowing the right answer, the right solution to so many issues. Those of us at Loma Linda struggle with this as well. How do we guide? How do we protect? How do we support? How do we grow the young people we need for the future of this work? But this morning, Father, we claim your promises. We claim the promise of Caleb and Joshua that you have given us success already. Rest on this congregation, Father. Give them that hope, that love, that courage that can make them an example of magnet to the community around and all that they do. Now be with us the rest of these Sabbath hours in our time together, we pray. Amen.